Welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's August 22, 2017, and we are coming in at episode six. I am your co-host, Mike Parsons, and once again, I am joined by my superstar co-host, Mr. Chad Owen. Good morning, Mike. Hey, and uh, you are fresh back from your US tour. What has been going on on this uh, fabulous trip to see all parts of the US of A? Well, first, uh, happy solar eclipse day to uh, all of you US listeners. I hope everyone had a chance to at least make a pinhole uh, viewing apparatus to uh, see the eclipse. I know, Mike, unfortunately, in your part of the world, you didn't quite get it, but we had a lot of fun here at my office co-working space. Got up on the rooftop and uh, had a little viewing party before we got kicked off the roof by uh, building management. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, I, I woke this morning to all my US friends, particularly all those in San Francisco, all talking about this. I think they got they got the full eclipse, right, in, in San Francisco? No, it was uh, like Oregon and Idaho okay. and okay. Nebraska. Yeah, Tennessee and South Carolina, I think, was, was where the full eclipse was. Yeah, so everyone was talking about like, you know, this massive temperature change that that happened and all this sort of the eeriness of of it. How was it? Was it quite eerie? Uh, I think the brightness changed a little bit here in New York, but it was only about a 70% eclipse. But I mean, it's still really cool to look up and directly at the sun with with viewing glasses, of course. Right. Um, But uh, NASA had some really cool video footage of everyone you know, taking photos of the full, full occluded sun. Nice, nice. Now, apart from looking at eclipses, you need to update us on this US tour that you've been doing and some of the adventures you've been having. Oh, it's, uh, I'm fortunate enough in that my work, you know, takes me all across the country to visit clients. And I was in, let's see, Ohio and Texas and Oregon for client work, but uh, also attended a, a storytelling summit uh, with some fellow storytellers and and had a really fun time just digging into you know how to tell stories and learning about story structure even doing some improv classes and uh, a workshop with a slam poet on how to use your voice as an instrument so it uh it was a been a fun couple of weeks how about how about you what's going on with you uh let's see so um it's been a pretty action-packed couple of weeks had a quick uh, little european dash for for a week and in the meantime managed to to break a finger playing rugby uh, and having all sorts of different adventures but um, feeling very excited about not only getting into our innovator and entrepreneur this week but really fascinated to, to hear what what you thought about our focus for this show. So do you want to you want to intro our innovator who's in the spotlight for this show? Yeah. So this week we've chosen Jack Ma, the Chinese founder of Alibaba, which may be a company that some of you know and others don't. I mean, I really just knew the name Alibaba and vaguely what the company did, but I had no idea about its history, the story of its founding, and really how it's, I think, very set apart from most other, especially American technology companies. Yeah, I, I must say I'm, I'm with you. My first memory of Alibaba was that, I, if I remember it right, Yahoo was a major shareholder. 
And I remember everyone used to argue that the only reason that the Yahoo stock price had any value was because it actually was a significant shareholder in Alibaba. But it, it really is for, for Westerners like ourselves, it's a sleeping giant in our, in our perception. But when you actually get into it, not only is Alibaba really remarkable, I mean, it's valued around about $400 billion. It has very strong numbers to it. I mean, what you have to remember is that, uh, you know, Alibaba ha- does over 15 billion a year in revenue. It's not even 20 years old. And it has enormous dominance of the biggest market in the world, obviously, which is China. And what's really interesting for me is that the story of its size and scale is complemented by just an amazing founder story from, from Jack Ma. What most surprised you about Jack when once you started digging into, into him, Chad? Well, I have a lot of respect for him in the way that he shares his story. I feel like he's a little bit of a fresh you know, voice in giant tech company, you know, founders land. He, um, he's very in touch kind of with his roots and his customers, uh, which I feel like goes a long ways towards explaining why they've been successful. Yeah. And it, you will, any, you know, YouTube video that you look up of him, you're going to find him being incredibly open about the fact that he failed university exams. He applied for a job at KFC and got rejected. <laughs> He's a big fan of Forrest Gump. So he has Forrest Gump wisdom at every turn in a discussion. And uh, what's fascinating is he actually started his career as an English teacher and didn't really get into tech until his 30s. And actually, when he was getting into tech, he had a lot of failures and he's so open about it. And he, he really brings just a very candid, almost folksy, storyteller, entertainer-like approach to talking about business and, and innovation. I found him very uh, refreshing and, and very unique in style. Yeah, and just in doing the research, you know, didn't have quite enough time to read much, especially any books about him or Alibaba, but I added quite a few to my list. So I'm definitely going to go back and, and dig into, into his story and Alibaba's story and really just kind of China's emergence story. It I really stoked my, my interest. And the two interviews that we pulled our clips from this week, uh, one is with Charlie Rose, the great American interviewer in Detroit, and then another where Jack is speaking in front of a small group at Davos, the Global Economic Forum. And um, I feel like we had 20 clips that we could have played for our listeners this week. He was a little Fred Smith-like from FedEx, you're like, oh, well, I wonder what we're going to get here. And then you actually explore this person and you're like overwhelmed with learnings and teachings and whether you want to know how to, how to think like an entrepreneur, whether you want to think in large-scale disruption or, or just about how to behave every day. I felt like Jack just gives so many beautiful little vignettes and stories for us to to take away. Yeah, and and especially the interview with Andrew Sorkin, a, a very great economic and just a, a great writer. He is. Yeah. Um, you get this 
global and and Chinese perspective that I think most of us Westerners just don't understand or you know can't really fully take that same perspective of which I just really really enjoyed you know stepping out of my American mindset for a while and hearing you know some real talk from from someone on the other side of the world yeah I think it's safe to say for the listeners in the next uh, 50 minutes or so uh, I think you're going to get a lot of big picture thinking some real practices that Jack employs uh, for innovation how he manages people and and most of all holy smoke is he customer obsessed so you will find parallels uh, with Fred Smith and and Jeff Bezos for sure but I think what you're also going to find there's some very distinct Jack Ma thinking and very distinct culturally Chinese thinking, which I think is really exciting to get into. So why don't you set up the, the first chat, uh, the first uh, clip chat? It's, it's a good one. Yeah. So I decided to lead off with some great Jack Ma storytelling. And this is him describing the creation of their marketplace product kind of within the uh, Alibaba platform. And it just really illustrates how the entrepreneurial adventure is kind of a universal story that is played out all across the world. And it's kind of the same story that we all have to repeat. So here he is talking about that experience. Year 2003, when I launched the Taobao and Tmall, was funny. We got seven founders for Tmall or Taobao. I said, everybody go home pick up a fourth, looking for four things that list on the website. So we, we see who will come to buy, how much things we can sell. So we, came, we went home, we cannot find, everybody cannot find four things that in the home we can sell because we're too poor. So we gathered 21 products, we listed on the website, we waited for three days, nobody come to, to buy. And then the next week we got we start to buy and sell ourselves. <laughs> For the first week, all the, all the sales was among ourselves. And then the, another week later, somebody started to test and sell. For almost uh, 30 days, everything people sell, we all buy them. Mm-hmm. So we have a whole house of rubbish we bought on online. <laughs> <laughs> Try to making sure that so those guys who sold were able to sell, say, oh wow, this thing really can sell things. <laughs> then more people start to come to sell and then we serve better and that comes. So I, from there to now, $550 billion. Yeah, amazing. So they went from buying their own products they had listed to a $550 billion company in less than, what is it, 15 years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, the parallels of this remind me of, you know, Stephen was building computers in, in Silicon Valley in the, in, the, in the garage, Google. I love the fact that he's so open about even, even they just didn't have enough stuff because they were, they were really poor. And I think that what we can start to learn from these stories, and I, I know it's cute and uh, it makes it very special that it all started, you know, in tough times and against all odds and all that kind of thing. But th- I think the biggest story in this is that those are moments when, you know, already p- a lot of other entrepreneurs would have given up. They would have said, look, no one bought anything. And 
he kept going and he kept going. He, you know, he missed, uh, I believe it's almost 20 job interviews he missed before he came, became a teacher. He was rejected from those job interviews. This guy doesn't give up. And I think we can learn that, that not giving up really reminds me. I don't, have you heard there's uh, one of the, the guys uh, from Y Combinator talks about survival is victory, like just staying alive and having the courage to keep going is like 90% of the battle. And I think that's what Jack really reminded me of is having the courage to keep going. Yeah, and powering through what Seth Godin, another great writer, calls the dip you kind of have to you have to have that suffering to be able to come through you know victorious on the other side and i think this was just kind of one example of jack doing that with kind of one product within you know the alibaba ecosystem and i think the the value of bootstrapping is really kind of highlighted here yeah and I, and i would encourage everyone to go back to our elon musk um, show if you want to find out where where our hypothesis is about where the the energy comes from to ca- to have that courage and to keep going, I think it really comes from following your dreams, your passions, and knowing that you're doing something that has the potential to to impact so many people in a positive way. I think this is often what gets those those um, those entrepreneurs through through that dip through the valley of darkness. As they say, now talking talking about other other entrepreneurs that we've we've interviewed and and deconstructed. Obviously, Jeff Bezos comes up a lot. It seems, don't you find, uh, Chad? Like every every entrepreneur and innovator we look at, it seems like Amazon comes up all the time, right? Yeah. Well, it it's always great for us to compare ourselves, you know, to you know, only one of the greatest companies on the planet right now. So, of course, people are going <laughs> to try and draw those comparisons. Yeah, and I and I feel that, that that it suggests to you just the impact that Amazon is having in the world. And um, what's interesting is that I think Alibaba, from listening to this, you discover that Alibaba really comes from a very different place to Amazon and that they're quite different companies. So, this next clip, is Jack talking about how Alibaba and Amazon uh, really, really compare. So let's have a listen to, to where he sees the difference between Alibaba and Amazon. We are not an e-commerce company. We help others to become e-commerce. We believe every, comp- every company can be Amazon. The difference between Amazon and us, Amazon is more like an empire. Everything they should control themselves, buy and sell. And our philosophy is that we want to be an ecosystem. Our philosophy is to empower others to sell, empower others to, sit, to service, empower making sure the other people are more powerful than us. Making sure with our technology, our innovation, our partners, our 10 million small business sellers, they can compete with Microsoft, IBM. Our philosophy is that we, we think Using internet technology, we can make every company become Amazon. So you couldn't get to more different points of view of the world, sort of empire thinking versus platform thinking. I, I had never really understood that, that difference before listening to this. How did you feel, Jeff, when you, when you heard that? Was that a bit of an aha for you? Yeah, it, it was that exact moment where it clicked and I 
kind of fully understood, oh, like that's why Alibaba has been so successful so quickly. Because it's kind of, it's testing the other business model for a company like Amazon. Amazon went the kind of control and invest in a, in a lot of assets mm. business model. And Alibaba took the different approach, the asset light, or you could you know say kind of the Uber. Yes. Um, although Alibaba preceded Uber business model. Yeah, and and I think that there is a really interesting pattern that strikes me as you you were saying that, which is Jack has the same clarity of mind that Amazon's uh, Jeff Bezos and FedEx's Fred Smith both had. He knows exactly what business he's in and the model that he is using. And I would say this is starting to become a very distinct characteristic in the people that we investigate, the people that we learn from have this very ironclad, crystal clear understanding of the, the business that they're in. And I think Jack demonstrates very clearly that he's not an empire building model. He is a very lean, collaborative, open system. And I think what's what's interesting is when he said the word empire, this really dawned on me, of course, everybody talks about Amazon because Amazon gets into everybody else's business. They, they integrate vertically right through the line. So uh, it, it, it really is a powerful uh, lesson for us, like know your business model and I think it also uh, creates great clarity here that I think the world can easily accommodate both Amazon and Alibaba. I don't think it's a question of either or. I think it's a question of both, don't you? I do. I, I think you know one thing I'd like to ask you, Mike, is as this theme of knowing the business you're in has come through many of these innovators we've talked about, how can we as entrepreneurs and people striking out on our own kind of get closer to that truth and you know i'm sure that we could wait 18 years like jack and kind of find the answer but what are what are some ways that you've because i know you've worked with companies and kind of helped them find what that true core and essence is um i'm just i'm 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 wondering you know how we can can do a little bit of that yeah so i would say that that um, something we've touched on on previous uh, shows really is this idea of knowing what you do, how you do it, and why you do it. I think that comes before you employ your business model or how you want to monetize it. There is also some very clear archetypal business models that you can use. So one of those would be a merchant model versus, for example, an advertising model. Now, what Uber's previous CEO talked about when we were looking into, into Travis is how the advertising model really is about leveraging third parties to pay for your, for your customers, whereas the merchant model is really where your customers pay. So that's a great comparison between two different business models. There's an, obviously the brokerage model, and that's much closer to uh, some of the Alibaba model where they are brokering between people, whereas what you see Amazon is doing is both using the brokerage and the merchant model. So I would encourage people to actually... Go Just go in and Google uh, business model frameworks. There's quite a few of them. And I think the exercise to do is 
to draw your company and its competitors or similar companies to try and find the similarities and, and differences in, in business models. What is also interesting is we will discover later is that Jack Ma's uh, view of the world lends itself to very disruptive business models. He actually, his whole worldview almost makes it impossible for him to do very traditional or defensive business models. So this is very interesting. So basically, he looks so long-term that he is betting on big long-term disruption. And he basically ignores anything that would be a horizon one business model, which is defending your core business. He he just jumps into total disruption mode through through a long term view. So um, compare and contrast with with your competitors would be the first exercise for for working out your your business model. I love that. I've uh, I've got some googling and some work to do <laughs> myself. Yes, indeed, indeed. All right. So 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 you've got another another clip coming up, uh, Chad. Hit us with that one. Yeah. I, another thing that I loved about. Jack was his focus on people, not only his customers, but also the people that he surrounded himself with to build Alibaba. And because of how much he talks about it, I really believe that people are, you know, core to his business. So here he is really talking about how to motivate the best and the smartest people that you want to work with. I think at the knowledge-based period, if you want to have a smart people work for you, the smart people need to be managed by culture, not by rules and laws. So in our company, we spend most of the time about the culture. And the base of the culture is the trust. I think that says most of it. He he said a little earlier in the interview that his three main points or the three targets that he wants to serve in, in business is the customer first and then the employee and then the shareholder, which proved problematic to him when he was raising VC money and especially when he was going public mm. with the company. He had shareholders tell him, well, what do you mean you're putting the customer and your employees ahead of us? And he said, well... If, if you don't agree with me, then don't give me your money. And he walked away from, from money because of that, because he was so invested in, in his people. Yeah, the, the attention to, I would argue here, he seems more attuned to culture and company than, than Jeff Bezos. Bezos appears to be very cerebral and, and, and brilliant on strategy and thinking models similar to that of Elon, whereas... You know, Jack is much closer to Oprah on culture and the way people behave. To me, this echoes of a very famous presentation that's on the web by Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, and it's his very famous culture culture deck. And uh, Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook says is famously quoted as saying it's like the most important business document on the internet. And he talks about how culture at Netflix is about highly aligned and loosely coupled. And it's essentially the, the inverse of industrial age thinking. So at the heart of what Jack is talking about is the same thing. You don't command and control 
in the age of, of, of knowledge and information. You, you can't use these empirical top-down approaches. They just won't work. And what, what he really argues for is that it's about culture. Yeah, and the and the and the culture is self organizing in a way. I think that's what uh, that's what struck me is that it's a much more natural emergence of kind of leadership inside the company, as opposed from the top down directives that he said he says it, he calls it rules and laws. Yeah, and 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 so to me, this is very connected. The fact that if we all take a moment to understand this shift that is happening. Uh, and I recently wrote about uh, this shift, so uh, we'll put a link to it in in the in the show notes. The the moving from an industrial age to a to a knowledge or information age means that we're moving from centralized con- control towards a highly aligned, so culturally values aligned organizations, which are loosely coupled, which means fast moving, agile, small little teams that uh, using Jeff Bezos's rule. If a team can't be fed by two pizzas, then it's too big. So keeping this very fast, agile style of organizational structure. But I think at the essence of what he is saying is it's not just about culture, it's about the act and behaviors that create trust within the organization. Because if you think about it, if you want to be highly aligned, and loosely coupled, which means you see eye to eye on the big issues and you just trust that someone will implement those as they see fit and that they don't require micromanagement. For that act to happen, there has to be trust. To me, that was really powerful that he he caught that one. And I, I would say that that's the thing our listeners should be taking out. If they're creating a company of the future and it's highly aligned, loosely coupled, it's it's really creating knowledge products, creative products, information products, then it's really going to come down to a culture of trust. And it's the acts that create trust that are going to matter. Yeah. The other thing that that stood out to me, he told a story about how he and the 18 co-founders of Alibaba got into a room and said, okay, we're going to start this company and we're going to bring the internet to, to China and, and put China on the internet. They collectively, you know, scrapped together every dollar they had and it amounted to about $50,000 and in that room they solidified that trust to found the company and that I f- feel like is where that uh, the idea of trust and culture came from was from the very founding of the company. What I what I felt in some of the other parts of the interviews that we haven't put in here is he went on to talk about how people not only trust each other but they they really buy into the vision they trust the the vision uh the direction of the company as well so there's sort of this underlying commitment in in the very in the boots of every single employee that are committed to if you will the cause the true believerism mm-hmm. and i thought that was was really an interesting thought that he brought that actually if you focus on trust that you get this sort of longevity uh, that and and this breadth of commitment throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. I'd uh, I'd love for you to introduce this next clip. Uh, it seems like kind of along the lines of of trust. The fact that they are such a large company with so much data, 
they have some interesting insights, not, not only into the customers they serve, but kind of the broader economy. Yeah, so we're going to hear him talk about the Sesame Credit system that they have developed. And I want everyone to really tune into this because actually this is the proof that they have not just created you know, innovation in terms of customer experience and the products, but they've really actually already started to achieve the biggest and the hardest uh, mountain in innovation, which is system or network-wide innovation. And so let's listen to this and then we'll break down why exactly it's so powerful. So this is Jack Ma talking about the Sesame credit system. So how can we using a credit rating system based on the data we have to giving everybody a Sesame rating system? That is so powerful in the past four years because every individual, every small business, if they have been using our services, we give them a rating system. So we're giving loans in the past five years, we're giving five million business loans. They only borrow $5,000. Three minutes, we can decide whether we should give you money, how much you want to give. Within one second, the money will be in your account. And zero people touch. So we call it 310. And even today, the Sesame rating system become people dating. The mother-in-law want to say, hey, you want a dating with my daughter? Show me your rating system of the Sesame car. So I love it. So uh, apart from being a, a critical part of the uh, the sort of family uh, acceptance of weddings and dynasty continuation, what he's really plugging into here is that they the background here is they needed a, a way to verify someone's credit worthiness and also to make sure that they bought. In, in the right way, but also sold legitimate products because they have a sort of a counterfeit challenge with Alibaba. Okay. But what really started to happen in needing this tool to create, you know, a, a sort of a credit check, if you will, just for transactions within Alibaba, this number became so useful, not only for Alibaba, because obviously it learns the patterns in credit worthiness and it's, you can see that they're issuing credit sometimes of up to $5,000 to people. But on the other hand, the consumers of this number are actually starting to take it out of the context of Alibaba and it's becoming almost, if you will, a de facto standard for how people are looking at their credit worthiness outside of Alibaba. And it's actually gone into some social fabric and that people actually refer to other people's, you know, wholesomeness as being derived through their Sesame credit number. And this tells us that it's becoming system-wide innovation. It's sort of becoming the de facto standard. And this is... If achieving this is very, very rare, this is uh, enormously challenging, but to have achieved this, this is like a, an enormous competitive advantage for them. And I knew very, very, I was so surprised by this chat. I mean, when you when you were hearing these stories about Sesame Credit, I mean, how was, what did your mind think when you when you realized the scale of this? I was curious, like, what would happen if our, like, Uber ratings or something or, you know, were publicly uh, viewable, you know, or, or something like that. Like, there's an amazing episode of Black Mirror, this, uh, this British-produced TV show that's on Netflix that goes all into 
uh, rating. Everyone rates everyone else, and of course, you know, it goes off the rails mm. and it ends poorly for for most people. But I I had a hard time. Maybe you have a some more experience or a wider, uh, you know, just group of companies. I couldn't think of other companies that had done something qu- quite like this, where it kind of jumped from the digital or commerce only world to like into the social fabric. I mean, there's a little bit of that with like how many Twitter followers or Instagram followers you have, but, um, but nothing like so practical of like, no, this person is trustworthy because they've taken a loan and paid it back. Well, what I, uh, I mean, to, to jump into a whole different space, I, I would equivalent this to the, uh, to the Schiller housing index. Now, the, this, uh. this index uh, was made, I think it was started uh, a good, you know, 30 years ago. And um, basically, the Case Shiller Home Price Index looks at the average price of home sales all around the US, okay? And, you know, it's built by these two economists, uh, Robert Schiller being the, the, the very famous one. And he, he is famous uh, for predicting the ups and downs of the economic cycles and so forth. And he gets it all from the, the Case-Shiller Index. Now, what has effectively happened is this is much more than just talking about a number for the value of homes. It's, it's a key economic indicator. And there's also, you know, the, the, the conference board has an index for, for business confidence and consumer confidence that are considered to have done the same thing. But you're absolutely right. As far as an e-commerce or even just a di- digital or technology company whose who's, um, who's way of doing something has catapulted outside of its original uh, system and has become sort of ubiquitous in life per se, in and outside of technology, I think this would tell you so much about the the prospects that they have and and it's so interesting that they're doing this in a market where well over a, a billion people don't have any credit history in china so they've effectively stolen the the lead on all the banks and so this gives them enormous leverage which is what happens when you have innovation not only in your products and your customer experience but when you create these system network wide innovations. It's exactly the same as the delivery system that Amazon has built. They've augmented the the factory with 40 jumbo jets and FedEx so they can have something to you in 24 hours or even one hour. This is that enormous leverage you get when you innovate across that that spectrum. Yeah, I think the only company that I can really think of that's so interwoven into the into US society is is Facebook where it's kind of so much of a part of of how people interact today um i'm maybe it's just heightened for me because i've had a deactivated facebook account for several years now but (laughs) i feel like you know i definitely feel like an outsider in that regard but it was amazing to me to hear how embedded in society the sesame credit score was and how much of an effect it had just outside of i'm selling you a good or i'm buying a good from you yeah so, so I, I think that this would be an indicator to me that big things are ahead for, for Alibaba because not only is their product wildly used throughout Asia, not only is, do people send these 
emails of gratitude to to Jack for the platform that he's built. But this third pillar of innovation, of system-wide innovation, he is completely playing across that, which is very rare. Only, I think, a few companies really do that, such as Amazon and, and Apple. So let's let's not underestimate Alibaba whatsoever. I think I think big things ahead for them. So I think I'd like to take a step kind of up or back and think, Mike, you have a clip that you're introducing from Jack where he's really embodying the outside Chinese Eastern observer on kind of what's happened in the U.S. and in the West, you know, in the last decade or so. And I found it really refreshing to hear from someone that's been outside of this direct experience that I've been a part of, you know, in the the whole Great Recession and the financial crisis, et cetera. Yeah. So, so this is where I think Jack gets super impressive and in, for my part, puts him on par with Bezos and Musk because I, I just want to contrast this clip to what we've just heard. I mean, we've heard him talking about bootstrapping and 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 doing whatever it takes to get the business off the ground. He's got that great clarity on which business he is in. He's not trying to be an Amazon. He's trying to make others into an Amazon. They're very clear on that business thing. He cares about his people, not only his employees, but he's very customer focused. Yes, which is actually where he draws great parallels with Bezos, hugely customer obsessed. And, and as we had just heard, that, that Sesame Credit shows you the span of their innovation. So already, you know, on, on my innovation scoreboard, he's batting at a high average here. What's really impressive is he does here in this next clip we're going to hear, he goes a little Fred Smith on us from FedEx. He goes like he demonstrates that he is a student for life, that he's a real learner. And here we're going to hear him talk about the last three or four decades of uh, U.S. economic history. And he's going to look at it through a very, very Chinese-centric point of view. And I think it's a very fresh way of thinking about some of the challenges the U.S. faces right now. So let's have a listen to Jack Ma talking about where all the economic gains of the last 30 or 40 years have gone. They made a tons of money. The money, the profit they made are much more than the four largest banks in China put together. The China Mobile Phone, China Unicom, and whatever you name it, put together. Still, these multinational companies made more money than. So, their market cap grew more than 100 times in the past 30 years. But where did the money go? This is what I'm curious because as a business people, I always care about the balance of shit. Where the money coming, where the money go? Past 30 years, the American had 13 wars spending $14.2 trillion. The money going there. What if they spend a part of that money on building up the infrastructure, helping the white cars, the, the white colors and blue colors? No matter how strategy good it is, you're supposed to spend money on your own people. Hmm. Okay. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> You know, this this is is very much like Fred Smith from FedEx when the when the governor says to him, So what's going on in the world? And and Fred just like, here's a quick economic snapshot of 15 different indicators and here I think it's what, what what America needs to do. Jack just in the middle just goes, hang on a sec, guys, you've made trillions of dollars, yet 
where's all the money? I don't see it. I don't see it invested in infrastructure. I don't see it in it. And he goes, oh, hang on a sec. Yeah, you've just been in 13 wars and you spent a couple of trillion on defense. And it's just like, whoa. And for anyone that has been to the US and, and, and driven around and gone to meetings and, and used some of the infrastructure there, he's, he's bang on. I found this uh, as somebody who's lived in the US, this totally resonated with me. You know, I benefit from an outsider's point of view, but I want to know uh, as a born and bred um, man of the true U- American, yeah, true American of the USA, how did it, how was your response? It was fascinating for me. He took the idea of, he said, I'm a businessman. I like the balance sheet, you know, the money coming in and the money going out. So th- there he went and said, okay, like, what's America's balance sheet? <laughs> and he 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 calculated the numbers, and he was like, all the money went to these wars, and all the money went to Wall Street, and no money went to the white-collar and the blue-collar people or infrastructure. I think what stood out to me was, and I am a firm believer in kind of cross-disciplinary and multidisciplinary thinking, you know, how does the American economy look if you treat it like a business balance sheet? And so to me, that was a fascinating exercise to kind of do even on my own and be like, yeah, he's kind of right. Yeah. And and what you start to get a sense of from, from that clip is I think there is this dynastic thinking that comes out of Asian culture and in particularly in China. The sense of family and dynasty is much higher than in traditional Western society. What's interesting is this comes back into into how Alibaba operates. And you can you can see that for all of the things he'll talk about on culture and bootstrapping, he has this incredibly sharp, like the numbers just don't add up. And I found that a very good indicator of a well-rounded entrepreneur, a well-rounded innovator is not just going to be some amazing product person, okay? So many many will claim um, that uh, a product or a company like Snapchat is, you know, fantastic and it's the next big thing. Well, what we've seen is that uh, many people have characterized Evan Spiegel, the CEO of Snap, as a great product guy. And, and generally in the Valley, everyone talks to him as you know, one of the great product guys, uh, not, not too dissimilar to Jack Dorsey, you know, a real product guy. But the reality is that there's massive questions around their business model. Their stock price has tanked since their IPO. It's below what they went to IPO on. And I think this is where you can see the difference between a full-fledged entrepreneur like Jack Ma. And if you look in the marketplace, it's not just about a good product. It's about having a great culture and it's actually about having true economic model that you can apply. Uh, some, talk, some talk about you know, product market fit. That's one thing. But knowing what business you're in and knowing how to make money and to ask very binary black and white questions, where, like where did the money go and what have we got back? If America had been doing this much earlier, this enormous overspending on uh, uh, defense and a huge amount of spending on healthcare that just doesn't deliver value per dollar, these are two massive factors which I believe take up like a quarter of the, the GDP in the US. 
which doesn't leave a lot of money for everything else. And I think that's what he's calling out. Yeah. And I, I would love to to kind of do other thought experiments and exercises taking kind of going in the reverse way, you know, s- seeing what we can learn from politics or from other from other industries and areas uh, to apply to business. Mm. Um, but it was certainly fascinating to hear his perspective. But he actually didn't always know exactly what he was doing. Right, Mike? I mean, there was a time where he clearly stated to the world, oh, you know, don't worry. Like, we don't have a business model. We don't know how we're going to make money. But, uh, you know, we're going to still keep doing what we're doing. Well, he, uh, well, let's, let's differentiate be- between knowing what business you're in and knowing where to make the money. I think he built a business. He knew what busi- business he was in. And he was uh, remaining very open to where he would make his money. He was never showing the confusion that Snap, for example, is, which has publicly said that it is a camera company, which it really is a challenging concept when you look at, you know, people download their app and chat on it. I think that there is this element here of he knows what business is in, he's creating value, and then he will monetize that because he has transactions. The great challenge for companies like Snap is what transactions do they really have going on on their platform? And what you'll see is that the Snap model is really going to become very dependent on advertising, and we know how that looks for companies like Twitter. Before we uh, go to this uh, this next clip, to me... What I wanted to ask you, you Chad, is when you hear an entrepreneur like like Jack who can talk everything from culture to where did the money go, what are the sort of things that you start to take away for yourself? Like how would you think about your business differently or what new inspiration does it bring to you when you're thinking about on one hand being very creative and then also on the other side, you know, building economic value, making, creating value for your cl- clients, creating revenue and profits. How, how do you take inspiration from this? I think it's his, because he's, you know, a, a half generation older than me and from a Chinese society where he couldn't afford a computer and didn't get on a computer until I think he was like in his 30s, mm-hmm. you know, he was, I think, the seventh person to get internet in China. That's right. And no one even believed that this thing called the internet existed. So he had a, a cameraman friend of his show up with a camera and point it at this homepage that he said took like several hours because he had to dial up and go, you know, through Shanghai and Hong Kong, you know, to, to get to the internet. I mean, it's, it's just such a different perspective on business for, for me. And so I think what I don't want to do is take any of my kind of blessings and advantages for granted Mm. um, and really know that as a kind of young and relatively prosperous, you know, Westerner entrepreneur, I do have a lot of advantages that other entrepreneurs don't. And that's why I love what he is doing so much because my last question was kind of a a trick question. I, I knew that that you you were going to say that he knew what business he was in and really what his whole drive is to empower tens of millions if not hundreds of millions of small business owners in china and across the world to be able to be successful 
and prosperous. And so everything that he's doing is in service of that. Yeah. And, you know, he's he now has found a way to monetize that and build a very successful business on top of that. But it seems to me like he knew from the very beginning that it wasn't about amassing a lot of wealth and capital for himself or his founders or Alibaba, but instead figuring out how to create this entirely new ecosystem of thriving entrepreneurs. And it, again, it's a very refreshing, I believe, you know, rooted in kind of Eastern culture idea of, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And it's not this kind of cutthroat capitalism that we have here in the West. Yeah. And and I think the the rising tide came to life in this next clip where he really in the in the early days and still to today has this great celebration of serving others. And um I think a lot of people who use his platform in some small way still feel that genuine effort that the company is making to help them. And in this next clip, he actually talks about the responses that they, they get from people who use their platform. So this is Jack Ma talking about customer feedback and how they, how they say thank you. The first, for the first three years of Alibaba, we had a no revenue no business model and i told the team forget about the money revenue today if you want to be a long-term company the only thing think about is customers the best revenue for our first three one or two years the best revenue is what is the email of thanks that's the best revenue if the customer sends you email say you are great I was so happy early days when I went to a small restaurant, people would pay my bill with a small note to say, Jack, thank you very much. I know you don't know, do not make money, but we made a lot of money through a website. There's a boy, he's uh, in the hotel, he opened the door for me, he said, Jack, thank you so much. My wife makes more money than me on your, in, in, on your site. <laughs> so this is the best. Yeah. And I want to keep this culture in the company, keep on going. Yeah. Such a such a nice way to kind of stay focused on the things that matter. I found that that a really genuine way of keeping on track. What did you think when you when you heard that, Chad? Yeah, I think the lesson that that I took away is that there are often other indicators of kind of validation that you're doing the right thing or you're on the right track in in the business that you're that you're getting off the ground aside from money and jack was able to identify that really early on and in the in these emails that they didn't need to necessarily jump to what would make them money in the short term because he knew as many of the great entrepreneurs that we've talked about on this show he he knew that it, if the customer if their needs were being met that the business model and the money and all that would kind of take care of itself mm. Uh, later mm. very almost like the sort of affinity people have for oprah how they kind of let uh, her into their living rooms every day for 25 years it, it's sort of evocative of, of that kind of kind of thing but i want to tie uh the the thanks idea to to the next clip and where mm. where all of this comes from you just touched on it it's this concept of time and he avoids the immediacy of trying just to do something from nothing and make it uh, happen today. He has this 
contrarian, totally contrarian point of view in terms of time, which contrasts significantly with this sort of uh, cycle that feels like everything is always speeding up. He actually goes on on reverse, and mm-hmm. this 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 next clip is him talking about the time horizon that they have and the idea uh, the ideas that come from that are much more high level much more profound than that of just a, a an immediate market opportunity this is profound impact and positive change on the world so let's listen to Jack Ma talking about how he comes up with these these big ideas Every strategic decisions we make, we have to ask one question. Is this decision we made solve society problem? Because we believe the bigger social problem you solve, the more successful you are. So if we do if this, cannot solve any social problems, we don't do it. Second, is this project is going to be successful in 10 years? If it's, it's going to be successful in 10 years, let's do it. If it's going to be successful in one year or one month, now more I would say, forget about it. Because why you can be successful in one year or one month? So we all have to put panel. And five years ago, we had a big debate about 10 years later, 20 years, what are the things that China society and the world leave, want? So we say happiness and health. 2H strategy. Hmm. So he's like, ah, look, today, tomorrow, next year, like he's like, forget it. I'm thinking 30 years down the track and I want to serve the highest of human human needs. Like he's, particularly with happiness, he's starting to get right up there on Maslow's hierarchy of, of human needs. Um, and I think what a compelling North Star to guide a company like Let's bring health and happiness. And it may translate a little cheesy for us Westerners on health and happiness. But I think you can see enough evidence that he's actually already starting to do this. Yeah. And I, I think the important takeaway for me was, again, kind of weighing the short-term opportunities and your kind of long-term vision and just being sure that your true North Star is that long-term vision and not get so distracted by the short-term that you kind of completely miss the mark. Because it sounds, I'm sure that he's turned away many tens of millions or maybe even $100 million opportunities because it didn't align um, with any of the things that, you know, that we've, that mm. he's, you know, sh- shown and taught us as we've been, been listening to him. I would also say that this characterizes this notion of not just having a cool widget that does a thing, but it speaks to some of that thinking with the power of why from Simon Sinek, which which is something we've come back to several times. But he, when you when you look at what he's doing and in helping small businesses, he talks about blue collar and white collar, enabling others to be Amazon like. You can tell that he wants to do this. The reason why he's doing this is to bring health and happiness to people, and what's been my experience is when companies have these big ideas, it gives them so much room to innovate and create new things because they're not obsessed about a narrow short-term tactic, which A, is hard to get excited about. It's hard to come in on the weekend. It's hard to stay up late for that. 
But more profoundly, it gives you so much more room to think creatively about what kind of business you want to be in, what kind of services you can bring in and how you can bring them about. So I think the thing we can learn is having a higher mission creates this elevation. It creates space to innovate. And I feel like this is something that we've seen in every single one of our shows so far. They all have very ambitious, lofty, really exciting, high-minded, high-value principles on how they want to have really positive impact on the world. And I think under that, there's all this room to do great, amazing new things. Yeah, I I feel like for, for some of them, though, they kind of the innovators we've we've talked about grew in into that vision and others kind of had it from the beginning right. and i really feel like jack had it from the very beginning and 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 it it may you know it may be from his background and his previous experience you know he was a professor for 6 years before he left to start alibaba you know to contrast him with someone like travis who who co-founded uber they kind of started because they wanted to be cool guys that mm. got to ride around in black cars. Yeah. Like they 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 discovered the empowering, you know, the gig economy and people to work on their own terms in their own hours um kind of later. But I really do get the sense that Jack Ma really understood that from the very beginning he needed to make it about his customers and empowering small business owners. And then everything he did was in service of that one thing. You're, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I have to pay you that one. Like I think, for example, Elon has always had big ideas, whereas I think maybe I would argue that when you look at Oprah, she discovered after that somewhat through her career where she made that turn between instead of television using me, I'm going to use television. And that seems to mm-hmm. be her watershed moment where she was like, aha, uh-huh. I've got it. Much like Uber probably stumbled on the fact that it can be this massive transportation company and started far more humbly. I I really feel that there is a big opportunity for our listeners in this last clip that I'll ask you to set up. And, And that is, I think this next clip actually shows us how he has done it. I think this talks about how he has behaved to unlock all of this opportunity, you know, all of this $400 billion valuation, you know, revenues of 15, 16 billion a year, all of this started from a relatively poor person who didn't even have enough things to sell secondhand on a store. I think this next and last and final clip is really a big uh, opportunity for us to learn how he did it. Yeah, this was like the Oprah moment mm. from Jack for me. This was like my, oh yeah, like I- I'm so bought into what you're saying. I believe it. And it was um, just very refreshing and inspiring to to learn about why this kind of you know beginner mind teaching mindset is so important if we're trying to make a difference in other people's lives. So I will let Jack speak for himself and then um, we will get to the end of our show. I was trained to be a teacher and I benefit because I don't know, know anything about technology, computing. I still puzzle about what is software, how software can work. And I, I do not know about con- con- you know, accounting, marketing. I know very little about that. 
But the thing I learned from being a teacher, that you, a teacher always want his students to be more successful and better than you are. Mm. So this is, I learned to be a good CEO. When I hire people, I always want to hire those people who are smarter than I am. And I, today I give a lot of advice to my colleagues. When they hire people, there's one judge. Look at the young man. If you think he will be your boss, he will be my boss in five years, hire him. Do not think, do not find people who will follow you all the time. So, I you know, as a teacher, you want you know, this student become a banker, that's a scientist, there's a mayor. You don't want this, this student bankrupt that is in jail, and, you know. So, this is the way that I benefit. And then when I become a CEO, I call myself chief education officer. And I love to talk, I love to share, because when I, um, as a teacher, you may not know a lot of things. The only things you learn and you share. People may not like the way I talk. And I'm not, my job is not to make people happy. My job is to make people think. This is the way we did. If it is helpful for you, take it. If it's not helpful for you, just to forget it. So this is, I love to be with this, the, the, the entrepreneurs. Because you guys reminds me the 18, past 18 toughest years that we've got. Mm. And I believe one thing, I'd give my advice to all of you as an entrepreneur, today is very difficult and tomorrow is even more difficult. But the day of tomorrow is very beautiful. Most people die tomorrow evening. You have to work hard, you have to learn, you have to rely on your team. And that's my business. I like to be a teacher. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, that was Chief Education Officer. I thought, talk about, you know, the servant leader, the humble, the humble leader that we mentioned a lot with Fred Smith. You know, great. His mission to just learn and then share everything that he learned. Yeah, and and he's so ready to admit, I don't know this, I don't know that. Actually, marketing, crap at that. Bookkeeping and finance, you know, not don't know much about that. But to to expose his vulnerabilities, that's definitely Eastern and not Western. <laughs> yeah, you know. But uh, so you get a little glimpse at the cultural difference there. I think the um, the the really the really big thing for me is this Steve Jobs like a CEO archetype. To me, is is very much of a of a bygone era. I think it's almost industrial age in in, in thinking. I think the future is. For the Jack Mars of the world who are empathetic, not only to, to their customers, but to all the people in their community, their, their employees, their partners, everyone, and is very willing to say, hey, I don't know this stuff. Come on a journey with me. Let's work it out. I'll teach you what I've learned. And look, you know, if you don't want to listen to what I've learned, fine, throw it away. And I think that this, this last one teaches us for us all that, that learning is key. But I think, moreover, if you are leading in a larger organization, that this idea of being humble and being the chief education officer 
and and just inviting everyone into a journey of learning, I think this is a great demonstration of like modern leadership practice. I actually saw it from a slightly different perspective. I, I, I still love the learn and then share what you have learned, but I saw it as like, for those of us that are maybe trying to figure out how to strike out on our own and what kind of businesses could we even start, I would urge everyone to listen to this clip again and embody this teaching mindset. Because if you can learn and teach someone what you have learned, I think that you will find a business idea in that practice. And you do that enough times with enough topics and skills, then you'll find the right area of expertise inside yourself and the people that are yearning for that kind of expertise. And then I think that you'll be able to, you know, start your own thing yourself. Oh, that's great. I love, I love the idea of start with becoming a student and a teacher and something will come from that. Is, is that, is that how you're sort of processing it? Yeah, I, I think is what I am trying to do more and more in the work that I do in becoming an expert in story and sharing that with with all of the people that I work with. I feel like it will only produce better work the more that I learn. And studies have shown, and we all know that we learn best by teaching. And so I think that's kind of like the ultimate way to level up, like you're saying, as a leader, mm. is is to teach because that forces you to know and embody mm. uh, it in such a way um, that simply just knowing or reading um, or saying it doesn't. I agree. And, and it, it goes to the reason why I try to write so much, the, why, the reason I give talks as much as I can. And, and in fact, I think this is why we do the show. We're both students of these amazing mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. and we're desperate to absorb every single thought here and 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 employ that uh for ourselves and decode it and share it with others right absolutely absolutely and um i'm excited at the list that you have kind of put together for for future uh, innovators for us to talk about. And I believe we may be having another guest on sometime soon too, right? Yeah, actually, we've got a couple of guests uh, lined up. We've got um, an innovation writer releasing a new book. Uh, so we're going to plan that one in. A great expert in creative thinking. We've got a well-known radio uh, host who will be joining us to decode innovators. So we've got uh, tons of good things uh, coming up in terms of uh, special guests. I guess the big question really coming, we, we have, we're going to delay Martha. I think we may have mentioned Martha in our, Martha Stewart in our last show. We're going to wait for one of our guests to return from some travel and then we'll do the, the Martha show. Uh, we've done a very interesting segue into sort of Eastern, you know, holistic, humble thinking with Jack Ma. Where does your mind take you when you look at our list of entrepreneurs and innovators? Chad, who's who's getting you excited when you look through through this list? Are you feeling the need to to oh, head I don't know. to head I, into a particular direction? I don't know. I'm I I loved the Bezos to Fred to Oprah to Jack thread 
I don't know how we can follow that up. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to need to take someone maybe from the entertainment industry is, is how I'm starting to feel here. I'm thinking we've got a few uh, a few music artists such as uh, Lady Gaga or NWA. I think they could be they could be very very interesting for us to do. So we encourage anyone who uh, has ideas about some uh, creative people. I'm also thinking Ed Catmill from Pixar Studios uh, mm. could be another interesting one. He's written a great book about creative thinking. Yeah, or or Bob Iger. Um, yeah, from who's Disney. now running Disney. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, listen. Stay tuned, and we'll announce who we're going to do next. And I encourage everyone to send us in their ideas and their and their you know their their thoughts on on who they would like us to deconstruct and what they would like us to to deconstruct uh, about them. Chad, before we sign off, are there any last thoughts that you want to share? in terms of what was your big takeaway from from Jack Maher and, and what you've discovered doing the show today? Oh, I, I think I, I just shared it. It was kind of the, the teaching, mm. uh, you know, learn and share. Mm. Uh, I feel like if, if we can all do that, we'll all, you know, be able to do really, really great things. And I also just wanted to say thank you to all of the listeners. Mike and I, don't only do this because we have fun chatting with each other and learning from these great innovators. We we do it because we're genuinely interested in what you are interested in. So yes, please go to moonshots.io.io and um, you know share your thoughts and feedback. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes um, or just send us an email. And um, we'd love to hear your your thoughts and ideas on where we could take the show, who we might talk about, or even just you know larger topics that we could potentially crowdsource uh, and and talk about here. Absolutely. And don't forget, you'll find everything uh, we've talked about today on moonshots.io, where you'll get all the goodies from the uh, Moonshot universe. So that's moonshots.io. All right, Chad, um, it must be getting late there. Uh, what, are the, what are the plans? Just uh, a sort of a, a quiet, quiet night after, after the podcast? Yep. I'm going to walk home with the dog, fix some dinner, Maybe uh, watch a little bit of uh, YouTube or Vice News tonight and uh, call it an evening. What's uh, in store for you the rest of today? Well, given given I'm on the other side of the planet and it's uh, kind of early morning, I'm going to wrap up, do some show notes and, and head straight down to the gym and then crack into my into my day. So I will be I'll be pumping iron and, and you'll be you'll be consuming carbohydrates. So we'll be <laughs> different sides of the world doing different things indeed well i can't wait until our next recording mike yeah sounds great well chad it's been fantastic once again thank you ever so much thank you to our our listeners and i'm just jazzed uh for for the next show and a big shout to everyone out there leave us your comments give us your feedback and ideas and we really look forward to speaking again on the moonshots podcast 